Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Stomping Jen. Sawtooth ring. How you doing? Okay. Yeah? Yeah, I'm excited. Me too. We're talking to Pasqualina Azzarello on the show this week. And uh, Pasqualina is an artist, a community leader, and an educator who works with other people to create what we call generative spaces, um, initiatives and partnerships that are innovative, collaborative, and uh, try to be inclusive of all participants. Her work has been focused on lots of in lots of different places. Um, the New Yorker, the New York Times. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. I know I have. Um, in other places, um, Pasqualina also serves as the City Arts Coordinator at East Hampton City Arts in Eastern uh, in East, East Hampton, Hampton, Massachusetts, um, and um, that's a lot of stuff. That was a. Lot yeah. of stuff. You already right? take a breath. Yeah, I'm okay. Take I'm gonna breathe. breathe. All right, um, all right. And I have a lot of questions, questions. for Pasqualina. Um, her art is really amazing. I'm gonna do my best to try to describe uh, what kind of blew me away um, when I was looking at her work. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk to her about it. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Pasqualina, hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us. Um, I realize I wrote um, an intro that was way too long, and I was... (laughs) (laughs) Um, tripping over a lot of my words and I probably didn't do the best job describing who you are so I just wanted to give you a chance to tell us a little bit more in your own words you know who you are um, what you do that sort of thing okay well first thank you so much for having me I'm a big fan of the podcast and I think what you guys are doing is great and I'm really happy to be here Um, In terms of who I am and what I do, um, I am a painter, public muralist, um, a gardener, uh, someone who really believes in the potential of community. Um, And I have spent a lot of my life working in service of the public realm um, in many different forms. And something I've learned at this point in my life is like, regardless of the form it takes, whether it's like 
murals or community engagement work or graphic facilitation. Um, what I'm really interested in is what gets to happen through these different platforms um, and the quality and richness um, of the engagement itself. So uh, it's kind of a relief to feel less interested in the form things come in um, because it kind of like if it's the garden, if it's a painting, like, you know, um, it's, it's a much richer experience I'm finding to be tuned into like what we get to do and what gets to happen as a result. Yeah. How did you develop this passion for community work? You know, I think like so many people, um, you know, as, you know, as professionals, as artists, you know, have to make that choice, right? Are, are we going to, f- are we going to be more community focused versus maybe somebody who's more inwardly focused? I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I'm really curious kind of how you developed your passion for um, sharing what you do, you know, in, in a communal kind of way and being with mm-hmm. the community. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great question and really important. Um, I grew up an only child Um, I was deeply immersed in coloring from a very, very young age. Uh, It was a place of great comfort and safety. And um, it it was very reassuring to me um, to just be able to spend like that kind of time with myself. It was very, it's always been like a very positive experience. And I've also really you know, a lot of my primary inquiry as a human being from a very young age is um, around the idea of belonging. And I think a lot about this real primary need we all have to belong. I really do believe that. Um, I rarely speak in universals, but I really do believe that if you are born, um, there is something in us that wants to belong to something, whether it's what we come from, whether it's what we find, whether it's what we create. Um, I think it really drives so much of what we do and it's very often, um, not discussed in the worlds we find ourselves in, uh, the worlds I find myself in and art has really been this primary like enzyme, um, to connect me to what it is I belong to. Um, and what I've learned in my life is, um, you know, art making as a painter, you know, someone who is primarily a a coloring artist, as I would proclaim as a young child and a painter, um, the, the process of making paintings for me has often been a solitary experience and one of real solace and, um, comfort, like I said. Um, but the sharing of it, you know, very much happens for me. Um, in spaces where people are living their lives already. And that was something I came to recognize very early on. Um, The first paintings I ever put for sale was at my BFA thesis show at UMass at Amherst. I sold three paintings from that show. And I remember taking my show down, setting those three paintings aside and very consciously thinking I'm going to give it a go for as long as I can. Like, I'm going to try to be an artist. I'm going to try to show my work. And 
I knew right at that time, I was primarily interested in showing it in spaces, like I said, where people were already living their lives. So like cafes, restaurants, theaters, and that has really evolved to, you know, city streets and the temporary fences that surround construction sites and, you know, all sort, you know, the woods now, the rivers, like where, where people are. Um, and that's something that there were a couple of times throughout my career that it was a very conscientious decision to continue to locate myself in that space, um, as opposed to um, galleries, you know, that, yes, people are living their lives there, but it's very much specific to art um, and not as focused on, you know, all of the other things that people are doing in their day to day. And um, being a public muralist connected me to people. Um, That's a beautiful thing about murals is like, you can't do it by yourself. You need to secure permission. The way I was working, I secured permissions. I was working (laughs) with partners. Um, You know, there were many people involved in that. And I learned just how much I value that. And it was my work as a public muralist that really led me into nonprofit leadership and now municipal leadership um, and really working in what I've come to understand as in service um, to community. Yeah, that that is fantastic. Thank you for that explanation. Um, <clears throat> I was surprised. We talked to a, a muralist before, um, Britt Rue from Commonwealth Murals, and I was surprised how many people are involved in the creation of a mural. Like before, I before we talked to her, I just thought you know a person went out there and just painted something on the side of the building, and boy was I wrong about that. <laughs> That's just it, it, it's 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 an amazing um, it's an amazing process that involves so many people. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned that art has helped you um, connect to different communities. And have you discovered like new communities you belong to, or you maybe didn't know you belong to because of art? Like, did your art help you connect with a new community? And did you find a sense of belonging there that maybe you weren't expecting? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. Um, I just caught myself thinking about a lot of things I've never thought before, which, you know, good job. That's like an amazing (laughs) question. Um, Absolutely. And I think that that comes in different forms. So when I was living in Brooklyn, I felt very much a part of my community in Brooklyn. When I started painting murals on the temporary walls that surround construction sites, I became very connected to layers of my community. I was very much not connected to prior to doing that mural. Um, Something I learned through those construction site murals in particular, because they were temporary fences that were serving a very specific purpose of protecting a construction site while, you know, the tallest residential tower was being built in Brooklyn at the time. Um, When the fences came down, and we're no longer there, there was a vulnerability to that space and a starkness to that space that was profound. And that was something I could never in a million years have anticipated, but it was something that many, many people echoed, you know, for weeks after 
those panels came down where there was something very human and handmade. Um, the, those pieces were all very directly connected to um, the complexity of neighborhood change and human displacement and cultural displacement. Um, they were physically located um, at the space between the neighborhood that was and the one that was about to be. Um, and, you know, those development projects were very significant in and of themselves. And then to really integrate and uh, in a very explicit way, put the handmade mark, put a very raw, direct handmade mark um, at that space and then to have it removed it exposed, it, it was very exposing um, mm -hmm. to kind of the harshness of this new building, which I found really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, I will also say something else that came to mind when you asked the question. Um, my work as the city arts coordinator in the city of East Hampton, um, I was really new to Western Massachusetts when I took that role. And it was the very first time I found myself serving a community I was not yet familiar with. And that brought up a lot of questions and, you know, sort of critical questions for myself. Um, and I really took it as a uh, as an invitation to introduce myself, to ask a lot of questions. I remember I went on what I called a listening tour for the first several months that I was here and to really like have my newness be really central and my genuine curiosity about getting to know this new place and, you know, all of the complexities of the social and cultural and interpersonal dynamics of the community that I'm here to serve. Um, as very primary and central to my understanding, but it was, it is through art. I mean, it is like my, my work is to serve a community of artists and to bring art and culture in a, into the community itself um, in a way which here in East Hampton is very integrated throughout our business districts and our education and, you know, many aspects of the community. So I would say that that is another example that art really has connected me to communities that I really didn't, like, I literally didn't know before. Yeah, when I think of East Hampton, Massachusetts, I mean, I think of it as an arts community, right? And, I mean, we often, um, <clears throat> Jen and I live in a in a town where we, we want more yeah. art. <laughs> and general lack of art. It's been a struggle to get art here. We're getting our first mural here. Um, and the thing that occurs to me as I hear you speaking is that like a town and people have to decide that this is part of their values, right? Like, and invest in art and invest in a person who mm -hmm. can bring that, um, bring that intention to make art part of the community, um, so I think I think that's a I think that's a wonderful thing that East Hampton oh, is doing, and, and I feel like it has I feel like it has really paid off because that is how I think of East Hampton. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in that way, it's like it's a very arts rich um, mm -hmm. community. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pasqualina, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned you colored a lot as a as a child. Um, is that how you think of yourself getting started as an artist? And like, where did that, where did that 
coloring lead you? How, what did that flow into? It's so sweet to hear that question. It's so sweet to hear you ask me about my coloring. Um, it really is. Uh, you know, I've always felt that as an artist, I am most interested in the human made mark. I am a mark maker. I don't care if it's dirt. I don't care if it's crayons or paint or clay. Um, it doesn't matter to me, but I'm interested in the human made mark, whether it's mine and the one I'm making, or it's the ones that I encounter, you know, on the street, in a museum, whatever it is. I am so interested in the marks we make. I am interested in how the meaning of these marks we make really changes over time. Mm. You know, as our world became much more technology focused and, you know, fonts entered our world, you know, like the human made mark means something different today than it did 15 years ago, than it did in our lifetimes, than it did, you know, in our parents' lifetimes and in our grandparents' lifetimes and like, you know, going back. So I am. I am really interested in how our relationship with the human made mark locates us in the social history we are a part of creating. Um, to me, there's like a real intrinsic relationship there. Um, as a public artist, I, you know, feel very strongly that space is never neutral. Um, and when you introduce like one's authentic mark into a, you know, inherently non-neutral space, there's something very profound is happening, right? There's like a real communication, uh, an opportunity for communication. And so, yeah, like it's all about coloring. It's all about making that mark. Um, I, you know, had a very unusual childhood in many ways. I moved a lot. Um, I spent a lot of time on my own. Um, there was a lot going on in my world. And it's something I've been thinking, you know, that's really surfacing for me in this like midlife moment that I find myself in personally. Um, the comfort I took in mark making as a very, very young child is very much the same as it is today. Um, there's a real sense of, I think of it as like, just like nourishment. Yeah. Um, like it's access, like it's this real direct and uh, reliable access to nourishment um, that in this world we're living in, I mean, I feel very lucky to be able to go there. Um, and through this whole pandemic, through this, you know, social and racial revolution that we, you know, are very much in, yeah. um, it's something I talk a lot about with my students. Like we are all very, very lucky to have art, um, to be able to engage in our, in our practice alone and together. Um, it's, it's yeah. a great forum, um, 
to be a part of, I think right now in particular. Do you ever, do you ever worry about or think about the, um, how can I say this? The, I mean, everything is impermanent. Let me start there. But I think digital art is more impermanent than, you know, something maybe we, maybe we, uh, you know, we have paintings that are hundreds, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old that we hang on to and keep because we value as people, right? You know, I I often say, like, I worry that so much of what we do in terms of artistic expression lives only in the digital form, that you get one EMP, you know, um, and, and it's gone forever, right? Like this is my nightmare. Yeah, you're describing. Thank you. Yeah, like do you do you do you have any thoughts on purely digital like forms of artistic expression versus like you know creating things that are you know tangible and that you know maybe stand maybe maybe in some way stand a better chance of being more permanent, you know, and being with us longer in that way. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. And I've actually found myself thinking about this a lot lately. Um, Not so much like specifically what I'm thinking about, what I've found myself thinking about is this, like these objects outliving me. I'm not a mother. I always thought I'd be a mother. I'm not a mother. And I have made thousands of paintings and I have taught thousands of teenagers <laughs> yeah. who make thousands of paintings, right? That's a little less direct, but there is something, you know, as someone who like thinks a lot about belonging and like this, you know, this time and our moment in time, Um, yeah, you know, and again, there's like some like middle life, something going on for me, which is like this real kind of profound awakening and awareness that like all these objects like will live longer than I will. And I love it. It's so reassuring. Um, I, I think it's really fascinating. So I don't think of it so much in terms of like you know, non-digital art versus digital art. I actually, I'm not sure if I want to admit this on the podcast, but I just like, don't really think about digital art so much. Like I'm on Instagram. And so mm-hmm. it's like digital art in a way, but like, as far as making art that truly exists in a digital form only, um, I don't really like, I just like forget to think about that a little bit. Um, yeah. I don't know how I feel about that statement I just made. And maybe it's not even entirely accurate but um yeah i'm i'm interested in the objects and and the marks and like that we make this and it you know exists outside of ourselves i just read something that said um i think they ruled ai generated art cannot be copyrighted hmm yeah did you read that i did yeah because it's not, it's not produced like, by a human being. Right, it's not, yeah. you can't copyright it if you... Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Because I've seen some pretty phenomenal art created by um, AI and yeah. by computers. Yeah. You know, like mind-blowing stuff. Um, that's interesting. As somebody, you know, I'm somebody who I like to create 
like stuff in Photoshop and, you know, borrow from this, borrow from that, remix. And that is, that's interesting knowing that all of that stuff is fair game. <laughs> um, well, you're not an AI. I'm not an AI, but what I'm saying is I use, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. You could be an AI. You, I don't you know. Could be. If we're in a You'd have a lot of problems <laughs> if, if we're you're a, an AI. <laughs> if we're in a simulation, I might be an AI. Um, so I want to uh, I want to tell our listeners, um, Pasqualina, to go and look at your website, um, number one, um, PasqualinaAzarello.com. I'm going to put the link in our show notes. Um check out um your instagram okay um it's at pasqualina azarello again i'm going to have the link in our show notes i'm going to be asking uh pasqualina about some of her work so i want you to go and if you need to pause and go and look at um pasqualina's website her instagram go do that um so you can um get a sense. sense of what we're talking about here um so, Pasqualina, I want to talk to you a little about your paintings, um, the, the physical paintings. Um, tell us a little bit about how you approach painting and like how you think about painting. You know, you have a couple of different what looks like series up on the website. Um, you know, one called Sender Receiver, which seems to be, to my, when I was looking at it, a series of um, paintings of um, people interacting in some way, I think that's probably the the sender receiver theme. Um, you have examples of some of your murals up there. Um, you have some other paintings based on folklore and some other um, stuff. I think that you frame as maybe past works, maybe things from earlier in your life. I don't know, but just talk to us a little bit about your paintings. Sure. Um, I'd say that. My process of making paintings tends to be one that's very intuitive. Um, you know, I went to art school. I can draw very realistically. I love figure drawing. I can render what I see and observe. And I actually really enjoy that process and haven't done it in a long time. But in terms of what I'm interested in, in the practice of making paintings, um, it's really feeling, it's almost a physiological experience of following. You don't know how else to describe it, but my best work, which to me means my most authentic work, um, I don't know what's about to happen while I'm making it. So there is this real physiological experience, like all those sender receivers, as I was making it, I did not know what was about to happen, like physically where my hand was going to go. It was a, they're made in this way. That's like at once very slow and they happen very quickly. Like it's slow moving and then it's over. Huh. Um, it's almost like a feeling, um, of like a channeling mm. where there's like something's coming through. I think sometimes like how funny it is that our words are like, our mouth is just like making all these shapes around a sound. It's like, we're like, and then it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, and we're like understanding something. I felt that way making those paintings. Um, 
and they came, they began in a time of my life that was very, very painful. There was a lot of healing happening through their being made. Um, and I was also very tuned into my experience at that time because I was in so much pain. I was like very, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was like real deep in the middle there, like in the early state, like I was in a sort of primary need kind of way. Um, and that work was very, very healing. I mean, I made more than 300 of them and wow. two and a half years. Um, and it was through making them that I really returned to myself, um, and regrounded wow. and recentered. Um, and yeah, I, I love to paint. I still paint a lot on the floor. I always painted on the floor as a child. I still do that a lot. I now make these, um, floating sculptures, which I bring panels to like an environment, the beach or, um, a field or, um, a riverbank. And I will make, I will work with paint with both hands at the same time. Um, and I actually make large scale uh, paintings against the wall in this way too, where I'm, I have paint on both hands. I'm standing stationary. So my feet are in one place. So what gets made is very much in direct relationship to my physical body. There's like a center and wings or, you know, ribs or however we want to describe it. There's like a very direct um, and specific relationship. Do you use um, brushes or do you use like hands or do you use something I, else? To so for most of my paintings, I use brush. Um, but I do for these particular paintings that I'm referring to, I paint like with my hands. I don't use a brush. I put paint, I like dip my hands in paint and I apply the paint kind of like they become kind of like paws. Yeah. Like they kind of like direct the material against the material, you know, is, is the there, surface. Is there something about that tactile experience of like directly, instead of the disconnect by using a brush, like having your hands? It's very on. different. Okay. It's a very different, and it's very, it's a very different uh, experience and like physiological experience. It's also a very different product. Um, it too, it feels like a channeling. I sometimes listen to music. I listen a lot to the, um, Tarantella, which is an ancient, uh, Southern Italian healing mm -hmm. ritual My family. I'm third generation, 100% Sicilian American. So it's music that's like very deep in my ancestry. Um, and it also feels like digging. So when I dig, it's a very physiological, very therapeutic um, release, uh, very embodied experience. And when I paint in that way, it feels that way also. And these floating sculptures I make, when I paint on them, I'm painting in the same way. And I'm usually outside on the ground working with both hands simultaneously. Um, and yeah, the, what, what gets made feels like, like it looks like it was made 
with human hands, mm. you know, at the same time. Like it, it's like a very direct way of working, which I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the, the paintings and the panels that you string together and put out there in nature. They, they're really fascinating. Um, and when we first met, we we met at I think Jen's art show, and I think Jen made an attempt to like in some way tell me what you did, and I was like, uh, I was like that sounds interesting. But then when I went and I looked at the pictures, I was like blown away. Um, there's something about I don't know how do I describe this. There's something about seeing human works of art out there in nature, right? And your mind is like, that shouldn't be there. But it also, your mind says, it looks beautiful there, right? And then some of them, I was looking at, you know, especially the ones in the ocean that you float. So there, there are these long chains of these paintings that are strung together. And I'll ask you about how they float in a minute. But like, um, you have pictures of them over time, like with the tide rising, right? So they'll be floating in the bay or whatever. And then there's a picture of them, you know, strung out beautifully along the rocks, right? And like, so even the the, the installation and the experience of them changes with nature. And it's like constantly in flux, I'm guessing. And that's part of the intention maybe, but... um. What can you what can you tell us about I mean this approach like I'm just so curious how you know how you were inspired to do this how do you make these things float mm-hmm. um and is this is this something you're going to do more of um so I'll I'll just let you I'll let you answer those questions Yeah I mean making these floating sculptures was a great big surprise You just want to make it really clear that like, I was not like, I know I'll make paintings on panels and string them together and float them in the river <laughs> at all. Like that, I am just, you know, who I am as a painter. I've been making paintings for all these years. I do what I do. It looks like what it looks like. I'm cool with that. I'm like, you know, I, I am content. Like I don't feel, um, like I want to like push my own envelope and like outdo myself and try new things. Like I'm, I'm cool with like being a painter. Like I, it's like just how it's been. And what happened. Um, and it is like, you know, I will just say like ahead of what I'm about to say, it's a beautiful thing at this point in my life to feel so new at art making and to be so immersed in this process of discovery, like I'm not a sculptor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a New Englander. I'm like a city kid who did not used to walk around in rivers. <laughs> like I don't know about currents and I'm a baby when it's cold and I don't mm-hmm. like to be uncomfortable. And, you know, same girl. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> So it all started. It's a kind of an interesting story. Um, I discovered the garden in spring of 2020. Um, I'm usually very busy in the spring. I've always been like an indoor plant person. Um, good, you know, green thumbs all around. I can just like make anything live and grow and thrive and whatever. Indoor, all always indoor. 
And then um, I live here in East Hampton and it was spring of 2020 when everything, you know, all the events that I had planned were canceled where I just thought like, now is your time. Now is the window, give it all to the garden. And it felt amazing. So I'm like in the garden, in the garden, I'm digging, I'm digging, I'm removing all that didn't serve. I, I took five 15 foot box trucks of waste out of my yard, oh my wow. God. a third of an acre. Like I worked really hard that year. Like I, you know, physically it was a lot. And so then it was fall. I started to feel very anxious going into the first COVID winter. Um, I live alone. I was very content just personally. Um, I have what I need. I was working. Um, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I grew up an only child. I'm like very content to be alone, but I was really nervous to feel what it felt like to not be in my garden anymore, to not have like what it was giving me. Um, and so when I went back, so I'm like, okay, time to paint. When I went into my studio, which is, uh, in my house, painting after that, like six month stretch of digging and planting and growing, it felt qualitatively synthetic. It felt weird. I'm like, why would anybody do this? Like, this is the weirdest thing to like hold a little brush and like make little mark. Like I just wanted to be digging. And it was a little bit of a, you know, just personally, like it's like a bummer when you want to be inspired and you're not. You know, it's mm, just yeah. kind of the way it is. And, you know, it used to like freak me out when I was younger. And I've I've learned that, like, you just have to wait for the window and, you know, it'll come. Um, but it was a little disconcerting for me. And so I, I, I won't go into all of the details, but I ended up making on the floor 12 square canvases that were all of the same thing. I painted them with my hands. Um, it seems a little strange to say that without saying what I was doing. I like have had it in my mind for years to make textiles. Mm -hmm. And like, I just thought like, make yourself a project. That's not really like your work, but that's like painting, you know, like physically you're doing that behavior. And it's the weirdest thing. Cause I was painting with acrylic paint on like drop cloth canvas. It's like, no one is to be like couch cushions. It's like, it dries hard. Like no one wants, they're ugly. Like no one wants that on their couch. I don't know what I was doing, but anyway, there were 12 panels, two foot by two foot canvas squares on my floor, flat, all of the same painting. Right. It was like the same pattern. Mm-hmm. And I had just never done that before. And it was all because I was supposedly like making couch, co- like what would become couch. Co- I like put on Facebook, like, does anyone sew? Like, can you help me? <laughs> it was just like, you know, this bad idea that led to like a really interesting discovery for me. And so I'm looking at them on the floor of my studio. It was winter. It was like late November, early December. It was getting cold. And I looked at them and I spent a lot of time walking in the woods. And I love the like lines of sunshine that shine between trees, mm-hmm. like those big rays that cross the floor when the sun is low. Yeah. I just visually really like that. And I looked at these squares and I'm like, Oh, they look so cool in the woods. Huh. 
So I brought them to the woods because I just wanted to see them in the sunlight. It was like a weird, I felt like a child, like I felt like a dog. Like I just had this like doggy feeling of like following my nose. Like I didn't know what I was tracking, but it was something and I couldn't like let it go. And so across the street, there's a trailhead. I'd spent a lot of time like in the woods always, but like definitely more during COVID. Um, And it was like a place of great solace for me. Like, you know, those first months of COVID in particular, and I brought them and I felt like I really had this feeling. I felt like the sender receivers, but like in real life, like it was some sort of physiological, like something was going on. And so I laid them all down. I'm taking pictures and I am like my I just was like, what is going on? Like, what am I doing? Like the world is falling apart right now. And like the need to do this is so strong. And these pictures were really fascinating. Like also, you know, just as visual objects and documents. And so I did that the next day. I like couldn't wait to like get up and like run across the street and go find the the sunspots, you know, like where was the sun going to be now? The third day. It was cloudy. And I had, again, this real childlike feeling of like being bummed out, like, Mm -hmm. oh, no, there's not going to be any (laughs) sunspots. And I'm like, well, something's going to happen. Like that feeling was strong. Like, I just have to go out there and I'm like putting them down and like, it's cloudy and like the pictures aren't as good. And it was like disappointing. And then I just like took them, I rolled them up and I was walking around and there's a brook that runs through the forest across the street. And that's where the sun sparkles were. I love the sun sparkles on the water. And I went and I just like found that light again. I was very drawn to the light and I just, cannot explain it but these were you know two foot by two foot canvases so like they didn't float yet i just watched myself toss the painting into the brook Mm. and i watched it just like float down the way and it was so exciting i couldn't explain it and then i found myself and then it gets stuck and then i need a stick and you know it's winter it's very cold And so I just like, couldn't stop. And I really felt like a dog then. Like I felt like the golden, (laughs) I was like running after my paintings and then I had to get it out. So I'm doing this for days and I'm like, what is this? I do not know. And I meditate in the morning and it was a day or two after that I'm sitting and I just was like, I need to be in the water. And I'm like, how do I do that? And I'm like, waiters, like every, like lots of people go in the water And so it was like one, and I'm like, I can weight them with a brick. I can string them together. Like it was this very like basic math that has taken now, you know, it's only been a year and a half, which I'm 48 years old, like a year and a half into my first drawings, you know, was a really different moment than like 30 years into my drawings. Right. Um, And so the process has really evolved. Um, I've taken them into the East River in New York. I've taken them into the ocean. They are, you know, I, I really appreciate your description of them, sort of visually what happens 
when you put, you know, and now they're quite long. I just made my longest one. It was, uh, it's 120 feet long. It's one foot wide and 120 feet long, which is very long. Do you use drones to capture the pictures from above? Is that how you did that? Because the, the aerial pictures of, of these are, are fascinating. They're just, yeah. Yeah. So I do a lot of camera work, you know, just on my person. Um, and then for a while in the beginning, I was hiring drone photographers to take them. I felt very intimidated by, I don't think of myself as like, you know, someone who's going to buy a drone or know how to fly a drone. But the thing with me in this work is it's very spontaneous. I wake up very early and I'm like, now, you know, like I just like go load up the car and I head out and I, it's sort of like all in a moment. And there was something about hiring photographers where you have to like, you know, understandably hire them days or weeks in advance. And I don't know what the weather's going to be. I don't know um, what the wind is going to be. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be in the mood to do that that day. And then it, and it's also very expensive and, you know, you pay a lot of money and get a relatively very limited, you know, portfolio of images back. And I finally was just like, what are you like for the cost of three outings with a drone photographer, I can have a drone forever. Right. Um, So yeah. And actually seeing them from above and from that scale and perspective has really honestly helped evolve the project because it helped me see them differently, Um, just relationally in terms of themselves and and the space. Um, But now, you know, they're, I paint most of them on wood. They're painted on like a thin Luan. Um, I have clasps. I have a whole little system. Now I I bought a cart (laughs) Uh, like a year and a half. I'm like, it'd be so much easier if I had a cart because I have to carry these things, you know, I, ha- I carry them into the woods or down to the beach you know, from my car to the beach. Like there's a lot of physical, you know, like getting it there. Um, and, you know, all this time I'm like, imagine I had a cart and then like, I just like bought a cart and now I'm like, I can't believe the experience now is the same as what it like. It's just a whole different thing. It's very fast now. Um, and yeah, I hope to grow the project. I, I do have like some very ambitious thoughts about scale and locations and possibility. Um, like you mentioned, um, you know, with any public project, it, it is so involved. And when you start to get into like longer term installations, semi-permanent installations in waterways, mm. it's very complicated. I would imagine. At least at the length, you know, at the scale that these are at, there's just so, so much more for me to learn. Um, and like, I used to feel like I was in a rush about it. I feel a lot less in a rush about it. I enjoy it. Um, and I enjoy getting to know and like continuing to get to know the meaning of it. You know, I still, I'm not, it hasn't quite settled for me. Like exactly what I'm, you know, tracking or yeah, like following. Um, but I also feel less concerned about figuring it out. Yeah. I mean, I, what I, I absolutely love hearing about this element of discovery and I'm, I'm so glad you walked us through how 
these floating paintings came to be because it's just it is so inspiring you know just that you know you got a sense you know and you followed your nose and and it's led to this this amazing you know evolution for you as an artist you know and and who knows where it's going to go now right and i like too that you're you know you're listening to yourself the universe and you're like you know i'm gonna slow down a little bit too and and see where this goes I think there's a lot of good advice in that for people, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about um, I'm so, I'm, is I was looking at the pictures of winter. You have some installations you did in – in, in like the snow and a snowy river and ice and I'm a I'm a winter and ice guy. Like I love the I love the imagery of winter and I love being out in the woods in the winter. And that must have been particularly challenging to put some of those out in the middle of the winter. <laughs> like um and the and I I would love to see some of them because it's like the the starkness of the landscape right against the paintings must be something to behold anyways i just wanted to tell you i really particularly love those um those ones really spoke to me thank you yeah just as an observer of of your of your work um um i also um you've done you've done some similar things with mirrors out in nature and some of some of i really want people go look at um yeah, pasqualina's pictures yeah um Anything you want to tell us about working with mirrors out in nature? And is that more of a photography project or like, how do you see, how do you see mirrors out in nature? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, when I first started this work and engaging nature um, and environments, I really thought of it. I've done installation work before. I've done performance work before as an artist. I really I really sort of assumed that this work was located in those genres. Um, and I imagined doing more like public performances and um, public installations. And as time goes on, I'm realizing how very interested I am in the photograph. And that, that like really takes me by surprise. I did not know that. I didn't anticipate it. I come from a long line of photographers too. Like my grandfather was a professional photographer and he just loved the woods. Like I think of him all the time. He'd be, he lived in um, Clifton, New Jersey, and he'd walk around in the woods uh, around the Passaic River um, in Patterson and Little Falls, you know, like that's where Robert Smithson was bringing his mirrors out and taking photographs and, um, I think about my poppy a lot because I, he felt solace in the woods and I feel solace in the woods. And there's something about the work of both, I'd say the floating sculptures and the mirrors that is of particular interest to me, which is, and this can be true of public art in general and something I tend to really appreciate about public art. I'm fascinated by how the introduction of something human made or human placed helps us see what's already there. Mm. It reveals what's already there. 
The yeah. river's beautiful. I like there's nothing to do. The the ocean, the sunrise, the whatever it is. But by calling attention to it and like it, it, like the photographs with the mirrors or with the floating sculptures, it they're very different than if it's of that same exact landscape without those objects being there. And for me, there's something about, and I, by the way, like, this is all like my reflection, like in hindsight, this is kind of like, while I take a pause from being a dog and following my nose, I'm like, what is going on? And like, so this is sort of just my own kind of reflection, you know, and relatively recent reflection. There is something about putting what are relatively two-dimensional objects, like flat surfaces in these three-dimensional, you know, it's not even three-dimensional. It's like this in, in spaciousness, in what is spaciousness that does something visually. And I've, it happens in the photograph. It happens for me when I'm in the space with them. And I've heard this from people who have been in the space with them there, where something is visually offset. And in that moment of like, wait, what's going on? Like something's flat. It like shifts how we see the surface of the water. Um, Or if there's a mirror and there's a sky in the mirror against the ground, right? There's this like offset, like something is being visually offset and optically offset. And what happens to me, I can speak for myself. It, it calls me into my own presence of being. There's like a curiosity. It's like a, wait, what? Like I'm supposed to know what this looks like and feels like, and it feels differently than that. And I don't yet know why. Yeah. And I like that. Like I'm interested in that. And, um, yeah. So it's, it's again, like not, it was not part of the, the intention, but it is somehow it has become very much a part of why I continue to do it and what it is I'm continuing to explore. Um, and the mirrors are very much a part of that component as well. I love that. And um, I just want to remind people too, you have a whole section on your website of your photography and I have to say one thing that stood out to me um, as I was going through and looking at a lot of your um, art, um, you have a a um, a category of your photography called living city, and it's all black and white photos. Is there was that intentional? And where do you, you know, when I think of <laughs> when I think of something, you know, when I think of living and being alive, right? I think of color and excitement, like like, and then. I saw all the photos were in black and white and it made me pause for us. It made me pause for a second and say, what, what is Pasqualina trying to tell me here? That's so interesting. <laughs> so. Um, I honestly don't know if anyone has ever like in any formal interview or maybe even at all ever asked me about that series of photographs. Hmm. It's a series of photographs. They're black and white and they're um, mostly all portraits um, taken in New York city of people I do not know, they're all city workers, people working. Um, I appreciate that cities 
are kept alive by people. I remember being on a bus in Boston, Massachusetts in the 90s. It was cold. It was snowy. I was stuck at a red light in a lot of traffic, passenger on the bus, looking out the window. And I watched someone carry a ladder, put it against the light post, climb up the ladder, unscrew the light, and replace the light bulb in Boston on the street. And I'm like, of course, that's how the light bulbs get changed. Huh. And there's the, there's the <laughs> person who that. does it. <laughs> and there's, yeah. yeah. And he's out there and he's working and I'm on the bus and he's living his day. And like, wow, like, of course, that's how we keep it all going is like we keep it all going. Um, and so I'm someone who tends to like get, I, I acknowledge a lot, you know, I, I am, it's just what I do. It's like what my family does. We acknowledge things, we give attention, you know, we, we remark on what we see and understand. Um, and I, I found it comforting to be, to have become aware of like the cause and effect, right? We live in a time, we don't know cause and effect. You know, we generally speaking, like, I don't know how a lot of things that I use that are in my home get made and where they come from. So like, there was something really like refreshing of like the light went out and someone changed the light bulb and now the light is on and that's important in a, in a city. Um, so yeah, so that, that series, um, living city, um, was really about giving regard to all the people who kind of make the city go. There are like people directing traffic and, you know, train conductors and a lot of people building things and fixing things. Um, and I would talk to people and I would tell them what I was doing. Like, I just want to give regard to all the people who make the city go. And if you look at those pictures they're very people are smiling yeah. you know and that's something i've learned in like community engagement work it's like a little bit of acknowledgement mm -hmm. go you know authentic genuine acknowledgement and being a teacher you know it's like it's kind of complicated how much so little can mean you know it's a sort of a commentary on how little i think most people most working people um, are acknowledged, mm. um, you know, for really what it is we're doing and, and the, the complexity of the whole that we are all contributing to. Um, so yeah, it was a sweet series. Um, I think the black and white, I mean, there's something very, to me, romantic. It, it's sort of like old school. It's, um, beautiful, you know, I find it beautiful. It's soft, it sort yeah. of softens things. Um, and it gives something, I think it gives those portraits like a sense of like, it feels like history, like, like a moment in time somehow for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love them. They're, they're I'm great. Yeah. That. It's really, I, I like that series. Um, and I, yeah, I never did anything with them. I print, I made a few prints and that was for myself. That was it. Yeah, I also wanted to mention the your series called You Are Here, which is, a, to my 
looking at them, it's a series of photographs of blank billboards, right? Yeah. And there is something discon and this is my own ref- my own opinion about it. There's something disconcerting and haunting about a blank billboard, <laughs> right? And billboards that are just left to like decay and rust into the ground. Like it's almost like saying to me, we failed at something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you? Um, <laughs> I, that that was just that's my own feeling looking at the pictures. So interesting. <laughs> I so appreciate you, you know, digging deep into the website and and like. And asking about these, um, yeah, the blank billboard series, um, those photographs were taken in like 2015 um, in New York City for about a year before then, you know, several months before then. I just noticed that there were more and more blank billboards and, you know, on the BQE with like ton like thousands of cars like that's the Brooklyn Queens Expressway you know high traffic area a lot of people a lot of like customers right a lot of potential customers you know lost opportunity (laughs) lost opportunity and to me it was a real sign of decline of economic decline it's like yeah people aren't buying billboards anymore you know there's the internet there's like a lot to all of this but to me, it was, you know, I don't know if I'd use the word failure, but failure is accurate. You know, it's like, and I, I'm not saying I wouldn't use it because it's not right. It's just like not a word I would have used to describe it. However, it's like, to me, it was, a, it is a sign of decline. Yeah. And um, they're haunting. They're haunting. It looks a little, there is like a, you know, apocalyptic vibe of like what's left over when no one maintains um, Mm -hmm. the billboards. Yeah. 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 There's still a lot of blank billboards in New York. I don't take pictures anymore. um, But I have noticed when I've gone down, there's like a whole lot of blank billboards. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for elaborating a little on those. Those really stood out to me. Um, so, uh, Pasqualina, I want to now talk to you just a little bit about um, kind of your work in the, the community leadership and education space. Mm-hmm. I think now that we've gotten to know you as an artist, hopefully, um, you know, I want to I want to just get your thoughts on um, what it means to you to be working in this role as city arts coordinator at East Hampton City Arts for the town of East Hampton, Mass. And, city. Uh, Sorry. It's a city. Oh, it is. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jen. I always, no worries. Yeah. I always forget that. Um, like, what is, what does that mean to you to be working in this role and what are you trying to accomplish? And Yeah. Well, you touched upon it a little earlier um, in the interview. It's a very unusual position um, for any city of any size to have anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. Um, East Hampton is a very small city of 16,000 people. It's kind of like a college campus, like a medium-sized college campus. You know, it's a very small city. And it's very fascinating. I like to tell this story because East Hampton City Arts is a municipal organization. I work in the planning department. Mm -hmm. That is so unusual Mm -hmm. to have someone responsible, a municipal employee 
responsible for overseeing arts and cultural events that includes public art, that includes community events, uh, a monthly art walk, you know, there's like a lot going on in the city of East Hampton, a youth arts initiative in partnership with the high school and the council on aging. Um, you know, we started an artist residency program um, during COVID um, that's still going strong. Um, you know, there's a lot that we do and our organization, we are in our 17th year. So not only is it unusual at all, but the city planner in the city of East Hampton 17 years ago understood that public art in particular would play a key role in the development of East Hampton. Um, what a genius. Whoever that person oh, was. His name is Stuart Beckley. And what, what um, additionally makes him a genius um, and acknowledgements to Mayor Mike Toutsnick, who was the person, you know, approving this in the city councilors at the time, some of whom are still our city councilors. Um, they introduced the city arts coordinator position as a five hour per week job role. They introduced, they knew it would be a hard sell to have a full-time, mm-hmm. right? If they had put to the city, like, let's pay for a full-time city arts coordinator, it never would have been passed. And so the initial role was like five hours and then 10 hours a week, you know, just a little, like get your foot in the door. And that person's role, you know, first priorities were to do some fundraising, but more importantly at that time to organize community members to, um, to vision out what this role and what this organization would be and what it would do in the city of East Hampton. So with that vision came a plan for when it would be a full-time job, when it would get benefits, when it would, you know, be scaled up. And by doing it incrementally like that, it also, and this is like the other aspect of the geniusness of the whole situation, is it really created time and space for community buy-in. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, one of the things I appreciate and value so much about, you know, art in East Hampton is just how integrated it is throughout the city itself, um, throughout downtown, throughout city streets. Um, our monthly art walk event happens, you know, we'll have 15 venues participating, but the large majority of them will be businesses like the ice cream shop and a restaurant and um you know we we are activating public spaces in many ways with art um and i just think it's really amazing um you know when i took this role it'll be um 6 years in november and when i took this role um, there were many, you know, longstanding monthly annual, you know, programs in place when COVID came, all of that shifted. Um, and it really, 
allowed our organization, I knew from the very start that we would become a stronger organization. Um, regardless of what was happening, we had enough resources um, and enough flexibility and enough imagination where we could really ask um, important questions of, you know, I think of East Hampton City Arts as being inherently responsive. We have a responsibility to our public to serve, to meet the needs. And as the needs of our public change, so must we. And it was like, all these artists like were out of work um, for, you know, indefinitely at that time and for a very long time to come. And we could really say, okay, well, what do artists need? What are the resources we have? What are the resources we could then leverage? And we just like got really busy. You know, we got really um, engaged and I feel really proud of that. I feel proud of the team of people I work with who, you know, we could have just kind of like not done that. And yeah. it was very clear what our priorities were and, and going through that and having gone through it now for, for such a long time, um, we're flexible, we're malleable, we're strong. Um, and we've really gotten to know, I think the potential and capacity of what's possible. Um, which is, you know, while the result of very, you know, challenging and devastating things um, is a really worthwhile thing um, to be able to have access to and 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 put to work. Yeah, I mean, that must have been really, COVID must have been very scary for the, you know, the artist community, uh, and especially in a in a city that, you know, Rely, you know, a lot of the artists rely on people being together in person. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it really is a it really is a credit to you and your organization and your team that you didn't just shrivel up into a ball and be like, "What are we going to do?" You know, like so many. I think I just I think back to that time, and so many of us, you know, there's so much uncertainty. We were all so scared, and you know, and I have to say, like. Um, some you know we're we're friendly with some of the artists in the East Hampton community, and I I was impressed at just at the artist to artist level how they came. Some of those artists came together to support each other. The mutual um, aid stuff. The mutual aid stuff. Um, you know, we talked to um, Josh Josh Sahosa from Black Labyrinth Tattoo. Um, he came, and even you know, I think about opportunity like part of us talking to so many interesting people like yourself, um, Pasqualino came out of the pandemic. You know, we found ourselves sitting in our house and we we're like, well, what are we going to do? You know, we can just, let's just talk to people, keep busy that way. And it's, you know, it's so interesting how art can, you know, sustain us through those times. Absolutely. I, I felt so, I mean, as someone who, again, I mean, this really, links back to what we were talking about early on in this conversation is like how art connects us mm -hmm. and art creates a sense of belonging. I think not by itself, but because of how we utilize it and what we do with it. Um, and I felt so fortunate to be connected to artists through that time because artists really located themselves and ourselves with what was happening, like with the truth of like 
this moment in our humanity, like, this is not about waiting it out two weeks. This is not about, you know, this is about a time of, of so many people at the same time recognizing the ways in which our systems do not serve us, right? This was a time of sickness, of death, of being afraid, um, of being far away from people we love, of learning new ways of doing things, of meeting our neighbors, of, you know, discovering outside, discovering gardens and trails and, you know, like, and the empathy that surfaced, um, was profound, you know, and I think that across the board, you know, clearly a lot of that has gone away, but in other ways it has not. Um, one of the things I felt in East Hampton is there was already such a foundation for that, those community relationships. Um, we didn't have to make them all of a sudden they were there. And that's something that I saw, um, here in East Hampton, um, you know, looking at how the businesses supported artists, how community members supported the businesses, like all those relationships were already very much in place and they could be activated and, and grown in new ways. And I don't think that was the case everywhere at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, kind of incredible to, you know, have my eyes open to, yeah. um, was realizing how strong that was. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about your, your role as an educator in the world. Um, I mentioned in the, in the intro that you're a part-time faculty member at uh, Parsons and, um, you also, you know, you do, you, you work with youth on education initiatives and just talk to us a little bit about some of that stuff and what it means to you to be a, a teacher and an educator in the art space. Absolutely. Um, being a teacher is like so central to who I am and what I do and what makes me go. Um, you know, locally, I also teach at UMass and Mount Holyoke and Smith. I've taught at Springfield College. I've taught at Greenfield Community College and Elms College as well. Um, In the course of my adulthood, um, I have worked with more than 12,000 young people ages 14 to 24. Um, And several hundreds who are younger than that and several hundreds who are older than that. And I've done that through, I used to run a community bike shop nonprofit in New York City, you know, went on bike rides with kids. We collectively pedaled 24,000 miles a year. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. Uh, And did a lot of um, green job training with like, you know, teaching young people how to overhaul bikes and build bicycles. Um, But also as an educator, you know, in college classrooms, also through making murals. Um, and so in, in, you know, kind of in a wide range of, um, platforms, I, I love working with young people. I love that age range. Um, they're really deeply immersed in their questions. Um, they really are close to their feelings. 
Um, you know, if you ask like teenagers, like what's going on in a way that they trust and feel comfortable with, it's amazing what they share. Um, it's really like they do not yet have the burden of the assumption of the way life is and needs to be. They're just in an imagination space. Like, well, we could do this. We could do that. And it's like, yeah, we can. And why don't we? Like, let's work together. Um, I also think that, you know, I mentioned before, like, this idea of making art that will outlive me um, and and taking some comfort in that at this point in my life. Um, I take comfort in teaching. Um, I've, it, it's changed for me, what teaching means for me in my life. Um, it's a very beautiful feeling to hear sometimes the words of my professors come out of my mouth while I'm responding to a student's work. You know, it's just this little like moment of recognition of like a lineage. Um, I think of, you know, being an artist and love, you know, having artists whose work I love and adore and follow and like have for decades, like it's in me. And to, to be a part of a greater conversation um, that's all about making and dreaming and, you know, visioning and imagination is such a beautiful life. Um, Do your students, you know, keep in touch and like contact you like years later and like, what are those, <laughs> what are those moments like as a teacher? You're such a good question asker. Yes, they do. <laughs> and it's yeah. so sweet. Um, they always start with like, hi, like, I'm not sure if you'll remember me. And it's like, I remember all of them. Um, somehow I really do. I remember all of them. I remember their work. Um, that's really interesting to me. Like I remember their art. Um, I'll see students years later and be like, yeah, you made that drawing of that horse. Do you remember? And they're like, how do you remember that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is like art. And I talk about that with them. Like we get to be connected through art. I'm still in touch with my undergraduate professors. I go to their art openings. We're friends. They come to my art openings. We celebrate Passover together. Like we hang out. It's cool. It's a beautiful, beautiful life. Um, when we get to be and stay connected through our art and, you know, my students now, um, not just college students, but high school students, I've taught a lot of high school students. They're, you know, in their thirties now, some of them, and they're running the show and, you know, starting organizations. Um, you know, we often follow each other on Instagram. Like we get to be connected and see each other's work. Um, and it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's really exciting. It's exciting to be a part of a young person's life at that particular time in their development and their, their self-discovery, yeah. you know, like think about what we were all making as 20 year olds and its relationship to what we're making now, you know, they are not not connected. And that's profound. Um, it's really special. And I think as I get older, it's something I appreciate more and more. It's like being a part of that. 
Yeah, I love it. Um, I'm sitting here staring um, at your core values that you had on your website and reading them and listening to you talk, and my skin is tingling. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you say on your website that your core your core values in- include, you know, a profound belief in the creative potential of individuals and communities. And, you know, and your work as a, your work as an educator and your work with the communities that you, um, endeavor to, you know, try to bring and build up art programs into, um, you know, has that, I keep thinking about the garden, your story about the garden, right? You're planting all of these seeds all over the place and, you know, they're going to, these plants grow. are going to grow, make their own seeds. They're going to... She did say she had a green thumb. The seeds are going to blow <laughs> off onto the wind and, you know, they're going to form their own little garden patches. I love it. Like, I just, I love it. Um, was it hard to develop a core value statement? No. Or did that one come easy for you? It come, that came really easily. Yeah. Um, it's really true. I, I believe that at the source of all tension, you know, be it interpersonally, be it socially, you know, in community. And there's a lot, you know, the work I do in East Hampton and doing it now. And actually since I've gotten here, it's really intense. There's like, I mean, it is, there are very intense discussions, their intense feelings, and it's very real and it's very personal. Um, and it also has, you know, cultural and social and racial significance and it is charged. Uh, and there are times it is very charged and it is intense work. Um, I do believe that at the heart you know, where there is tension, where there is struggle, um, there is also misunderstanding. And, you know, beneath or within, um, you know, words or behaviors or whatever form the tension is sort of being expressed through, um, there is a tremendous opportunity for um, understanding and for what I consider healing, um, both personally and socially and collectively. Um, and so that is, that is something I, I just carry. And, um, it's something I certainly carry in my interpersonal relationships and, you know, with my family, with my friends, my people who are dear to me. Um, and it's also something I've come to recognize I carry with me in wherever I go, you know, my work, it's weird to even call it work, you know, like it's my life and whether it's in the studio or in community or in the classroom, like wherever the exchanges are taking place. Um, I really do believe in people's capacities. Um, to understand, uh, and to heal. And sometimes that work is more direct than others. Oftentimes it's very indirect. Um, but it's rarely not 
in my sphere of awareness of like, that is part of what we are here to do. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Um, before we go to our last uh, couple of questions, um, is there anything else you wanted to, to touch upon that we didn't cover? I know we covered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been incredible. Um, no, I feel like, you know, this is, this has been like a very creative experience in and of itself. Uh, I really oh, appreciate, yeah. um, yeah, all that you're inquiring about. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. Um, all right. So what do you like to do for fun? Um, that's <laughs> all right. Let's not, we can't, I'm going to take painting off the table because we know you like to do paint and we know you like to paint and create and do that sort of thing. So not related to, not related to your main, you know, mm -hmm. artistic forms of expression. What do you like to do for fun? What else kind of brings you joy? Um, well, I, uh, I got a kayak. I love Ooh. it. I've been kayaking for a long time. I've never owned my own kayak. I've never lived so close to all these waterways. So, you know, that is like amazing. Mm. Uh, I used to be quite an avid cyclist. I, you know, biked a lot all throughout New York city and did like some long distance riding. And it just like, I was paddling the other day and I'm like, Oh, it's like, cycling with my arms like <laughs> sort of the same yeah. relationally like the relationship between my body and the vehicle and this sort of like human propelled you know through the landscape experience is like very related in a way that like had never occurred to me and I so yeah kayaking um I've been playing a lot of racquetball uh, oh. a lot of racquetball as a kid growing up in LA in the 80s um, kind of rediscovered racquetball, um, recently. I love to hike. I like to be outdoors, you know, um, racquetball it, is so intense. I tried playing it, um, back in college with somebody a couple of times and I was just, I have to remark on this cause I really was struck about like what an intense experience it is. You go into that room the door shuts behind you and then there's like the four walls and you're both trying to hit that ball like as hard as you can. It's loud. It's like, yeah, it's such a cool <laughs> like sport. And I don't know how else to describe that like intensity. <laughs> it's really true. You're like in it, you know, yeah. you're like, you can't not be in it. And there is, there's something about that sound and like, you know, and just like, sort of if you look at how bodies move through space in a racquetball court, it's like hysterical. Yeah. You know, it feels very like, like I'm a child playing like make believe Broadway or something. Um, yeah. It's uh, it was kind of like an unexpected rediscovery, but I love it. It brings out a lot of like laughter and yelling and goofiness. Like when I started playing, I was just like screaming a lot and I'm like, <laughs> I have like lived alone through a pandemic. Like I don't remember the last time I just yelled like so much, like so loudly. And it felt really good. Like physically, it just felt like clearance or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, my job is very social. Um, and I'm kind of an introvert. So it's interesting. I used to like, when I was younger, like go to a lot more like art openings and like, do more like that sort of like cultural engagement stuff. 
Um, I do a lot of that for my work. I do some of that, um, you know, as a human being who's not at work, but not as much as I used to. I love to cook. Um, I'm kind of like an intuitive painter, gardener, and cook. You know, I kind of like getting into that space of like mm. following my nose. Um, yeah, I'm sure I'm forgetting lots of things, but I feel like I have quite a lot of fun in my life. So. I love it. Thank you for sharing that Thank with you. us. All right. Our yeah. last, our last question. Um, what have you experienced that you have a hard time explaining? This could literally Say be that any- again? What have you experienced that you have a hard time explaining? So this could be this could be anything. It could be. I, I have I have my answer. All right. Okay. Because um, I've been having a hard time explaining it a lot lately. So, if there are any listeners out there who have any feedback, any advice, any suggestions, I really, really would welcome it. So. This relates a little bit to what I was talking about before of trying to explain optically what happens inside of me, inside of my body. When I'm looking, I was talking about like these floating sculptures and the surface of the water, but beyond that, there are certain sites that I I don't know because I'm not a scientist. I don't know actually what's going on. And it sounds like so matter of fact, like, like, of course it would be this way. But I'm like, no, it, of course, like we are so used to it that we sort of, anyway, so here's the thing. There are certain sites. Sometimes it's like light, the way it like hits trees. Sometimes it's like an iridescence, something like rainbows. I don't, it doesn't matter. A three-piece suit, like certain things make my eyes, I describe it as resting. They just rest. It's like, ah, something optically is happening. And it does what I call it calls me into a presence of being. I think many people experience this with like listening to songs, music. Like we have experiences as human beings that are just like steeped in wonder. They're just steeped in like awe, you know, but something happens physiologically with that awe. I want to know what is happening. (laughs) I tried Googling it. I thought I was going to find like philosophers and books and like resources and all this research. And like, I cannot find anything. The only thing that came a little bit close, I'm not going to recall his name, but he's like a well-known psychedelic drug user who, uh, I don't know if that's really the correct terminology, um, but he describes like the iridescence of butterfly wings as being like the way he describes it. I'm like, this guy knows what I'm talking about. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Um, And it's only been during COVID. I think when I was spending all the time in the woods where like, I just would sort of feel this presence of being. So I describe it as like awe and wonder, but it's not like a thinking thing at all. It's like, being in your body, like immersed in this 
body space, but it's related to this optical experience, like an optical, like a physio, I don't know. Yeah. But like, I, I just, I just want someone to tell me like what's going on. Hmm. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Now I feel very frustrated because like it kind of gets <laughs> into this space of like, <laughs> what is that? It's so basic. Like yeah. that feeling of being connected to the universe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like meditation. There's like all this research, you know, like I can think of a lot yeah. of correlated things and there's a whole lot of information on that. But this visual thing, like I can't find it yet. Yeah. I can, I, have yet. I can relate to seeing things though. I, I get that what you're saying. Like I get that. Like all the time I'll be like screaming at people in my car if they're with me, like look at the sky or like look at the sun setting through the trees or this is going to sound really corny and cheesy, but like a comparable thing for me is like at night when you lay down with me. <laughs> when you feel contented and all this. It's just right that feeling universe. of like total calm and peacefulness and relaxation. I don't know. It's like an indescribable feeling. But mm -hmm. um, Pascalina Azarello. We have talked about a lot of things and I really enjoyed our conversation and in, in learning about you as an artist, your work with the community, your work as an educator. And I just want to thank you for coming here to talk with us and, and, and share all of this stuff with us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate this so much. You guys are great. I love what you do. I love the space you've made and um, yeah, what a rich conversation this has been. Thank you. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, again, we, we really appreciated having you. Um, listeners, a couple of things we want to tell you. Go check out Pasqualina's website, okay? Um, check out Pasqualina's Instagram. Um, Pasqualina does have a Facebook page, um, you know, I don't know if you connect with people on there or not, um, but... It's there. So people, if you want to, you know, reach out that way, I guess you could do that too. A um, uh, couple things. So if you're coming to us for the first time uh, because you were interested in, in hearing this conversation with uh, Pasqualina, uh, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Okay. And then you'll get our future episodes in your uh, podcast feed. You can always go back and look at whatever else. Yep. I mean, we have over 200 episodes, um, you know, with a lot of interesting people um, like Pasqualina. So this is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. There's a lot more out there if you like what you hear here. Um, let's see. Uh, you check out our website, um, softservepodcast.com. You can connect with us on social media. What else? We love you. All right. I'm feeling the love tonight. All right. We love you. I'll say we it. We love you tonight. Yeah, tonight, tonight listeners. We love you. Yeah, we love you tonight. Um, I think that's it, right? We'll just say goodbye. Yeah, and we're at that point. We are. All right. Well, we're past at the end. Pasqualina, We've reached the end. This is where we all just we go around and say goodbye in whatever way we like to do that. So we'll we'll give you the the honors of going first. All right. Good night, everyone. All right, stomping Jen. Bye now. All right. You heard it. Um, thanks, everyone. And um, bye now.
this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road.